So I remember one of my assigned books from seminary uh, was called Turning Points by Mark Knoll, and it's Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity. And it's one of those I found myself enjoying at the time and rereading a few times later, but it, it's key moments in history that, that they changed everything, like from, from that point on. And so Noel kind of looks at these points in history, and, and then after that, the ones he was looking for, the ones that once they happened, everything would be different thereafter. And, but he starts it, of course, after Christianity starts. It's meant to be kind of a church history book. What I want to suggest this morning is that the birth of Christ, the coming of Jesus into the world, was the one event in all of human history that, that is the one key turning point of everything. That the, the coming of Jesus, and, and the term for that is the incarnation. It's the coming of Jesus into the world in the flesh. That's what the the carnace part of that is, that Jesus came in the flesh, and that is the, the, the grand miracle. So another book uh, I reread many times, C.S. Lewis, and he's talking about can you have Christianity without the incarnation, without, this, the, without miracles at all, but especially the miracle of, of the incarnation. And here's what he writes in God and the Doc in his book says, but you cannot possibly do that with Christianity because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. In the incarnation, God was coming near to his people in a way we could hardly imagine, hardly fathom, even though the prophets had foretold it. We just couldn't believe that this is the way God would come to us. This morning, I want to, um, and thinking about this incarnation and, and getting to our passage, but I want to look at it from some different angles, and I want to start by first saying, how had God come to his people in the past, before Christ? Then, then we'll look at how did the prophets point to him coming a new way? How did they foretell this, this coming incarnation? Third, we'll look at two, briefly look at two passages in the, the, the New Testament that, that speak about this from different, different ways. And then fourth, we'll finally get to our main passage that Bill had just read that I think not only highlights the incarnation, but how it, how it plays into God's salvation project, how it fits into our salvation. And then fifth, we'll naturally think about Mary. Like, how, how did she fit into that? That's why I wanted to show that video of, because this is a real person, right? That, Someone had to, to be the one who gave birth in this incarnation. And so I want to look at her and also how her response kind of helps us think about how we respond. And then along the way, I have a little 
sidetrack side thing, a side point of interest that some of you may like and others you can ignore. But we'll, we'll get to that when we come. So, first of all, how had God come to his people in the past before Christ? Well, one is, is he would appear as what's called the angel of the Lord. And this is a temporary human form. That there's times in the Bible where, where one who is this, has this authority that speaks for God would be in the, he would be thought of as a, a person, but he was not quite a person. So he would come to Abraham that way. And is this an angel? One of the questions is when the angel of the Lord came, is this God or is this a messenger from God? It was always a little bit confusing. But nevertheless, it was really the Lord taking human form. Um, he talked to Abraham that way. He even wrestled with Jacob in this angel of the Lord form. So, but it wasn't clear, to, at least to those in the time, was this really the Lord? The other way he came in the Old Testament is the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You might think of this especially in the, the movie The Ten Commandments, right? The time of Moses. He was, he was the, the fire in the burning bush, but later he's this awesome, glorious presence who leads the people out of slavery in Egypt, leads them into the promised land. Here, it was very clear, this was, was God. You know, they, were, they knew they were dealing with an all-powerful God, and truthfully, they were freaked out by it. They were terrified. And let me read from Exodus 20 about how people responded to God's coming to them this way. It says, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses alone drew near into the thick darkness where God was. So when God showed up that way, it, it wasn't enabling him to be close to people except for the brave few like, like Moses. And so God came another way, and that was through his voice. He would speak to certain people, his prophets, who were, these were men and women who would hear from God and give out his messages. And the classic way is, is when Elijah was on the mountain. And God did powerful acts. An earthquake, a windstorm, fire came. But none of those were God. It is only when Elijah heard a gentle whisper. That's when he had a conversation with God. And so God would speak in a gentle way to his prophets people who were ready to hear from God and they would convey to the people or they would write down in the word God's messages. And, and in fact, during the time of the temple, when, when God's presence was dwelling in the temple, God did not really make these appearances. He spoke to his prophets. He only came by his voice. Except for one exception. And that's when he had three of his followers, um, Madrat, 
Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused, they were in exile in Babylon, they refused to worship the golden idol of the king of Babylon, and they got cast into the fiery furnace, and God protected them, and it says they looked in, and they didn't see just three people, they saw a fourth shape, a fourth person, the angel of the Lord again. So, so but other than that, generally God let his word through his prophets be his way of communicating until, but he, until the time of Jesus. And he kept saying through his prophets, a new way is coming. I will come and you will see me again. Psalm 2 simply talks about how God would send his son to rule over his people and extend his rule beyond his people. Um, Isaiah 7, 14 is the classic Christmas text. I'm sure you've probably heard it or seen it on a little card, right? The, uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The virgin part is in itself pretty amazing, but even more so is that second word. They will call him Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God with us or God in our midst. A baby will be born who will convey God's presence right in our midst. And Isaiah keeps that going. In, in Isaiah 9, he talks about a child is, will be born, a child will be given to us, and that child will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. So a, a child, a baby, will convey and be called all this. So the prophets were looking ahead saying, God is coming in this new way. And then in Ezekiel 34... It says, for thus says the Lord God, God was frustrated that all his, his shepherds or representatives he sent could not, would not helping the people. And he's like, I'm, I'm tired of these, these messengers not getting it right. And so he says, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. He would not send just another representative, but would come himself. And Jesus says, he is the son of man, would come to seek and to save the lost. He would fulfill this Ezekiel 34. But how could God approach right, the eternal, the, in, the invisible, the one who lives an unapproachable life? How, how could he come without like what happened on the mountain? You know, the, the people being afraid. And, you know, how could he convey that he was God and yet still still be approachable to people. He would have to come in utter humility, even in weakness. And what would be more weak and humble than an infant? A, a, a small being utterly dependent on its mother for life and sustenance. There's two verses I want to look at that, that kind of give you that sense. Philippians 2 talks about how he was in the form of God. He was in very nature God. Um, but he did not hold on to the prerogatives of God. Instead, he humbled himself. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So that, that word, he emptied himself. He had to, um, in a sense not hold on to all the things he could do as God in order to become a, a human child. 
Like, he wasn't play-acting, right? He was literally becoming a, a child dependent upon its mother. Even before that, a, a, a fetus, an unborn child, right? Tied to the nutrition that his mother would give. So he had to empty himself of all the, 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 the trappings of, of divinity, even though he was still God in, in all his character and ways and essence and, and who he was. He wasn't, you know, play acting like, you know, he wasn't like Baby Yoda where he could point and still, like, make things happen. Um, you know, he was a real human baby. John 1.14 talks about the Word, the Word being the one who was with God, the Word was God, the Word was part of creation, and the Word gave life to men, and then the Word himself became flesh and made his dwelling in our midst. And John goes on to say, we have seen him. We've seen the one and the only. We saw him with our eyes. Otherwise, we would not have believed it. How could you believe that God, the uncreated one, would, would come like that unless we saw it? And that leads us now to our, our main text, Galatians 4. Now it says the same thing. It says it in a different way, right? It says, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Making clear, the son is, is not another representative. The son is the son. And Hebrews 1 talks about how the son is the exact imprint of God, right? It's, it's God becoming a human being. It's, it's, the, it's the one that you can see what God looks like. He is God become a human being. He is the word become flesh. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born into the natural processes of this world in the natural way. The other line I, I want to draw out of this is when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. That, that when God was deciding, you know, Jesus was deciding how would he come into this world, he, he didn't like twirl a globe and then like, I'll come here, you know. He, he had been working with one particular people. This is what I emphasized a couple weeks ago, that, that the Savior would come through the Jewish people, a people that God had long prepared to be ready and to understand what it all meant, that his salvation project wasn't spur of the moment. He had prepared the way and was born into the Jewish people. It talks about here how he was not only born of woman, he was born under the law, born under the, the Jewish law. Um, and he came to this one particular people so that ultimately the salvation could be extended to all peoples. We, we would think, and this is the point C.S. Lewis makes in his, his, his chapter on this, this idea of the incarnation. Our, our thinking would be, well, God would, would do everything equally for all people. Like all people would have equal chance to know what God is like and that, that's how we sort of think. God would make it fair. And, and this is actually the, the line that got, spurred my whole thinking for this whole sermon series um, from this. And, and this is what C.S. Lewis says. How shockingly opposite to that is the Christian story. You know, instead of all, all people equally, it says to one people picked out of the whole earth. That people purged and proved again and again some are lost in the desert before they reach Palestine. Some stay in Babylon. Some become indifferent. The whole thing narrows and narrows 
until at last it comes to one little point. Small as the point of a spear, a Jewish girl at her prayers. That is what the whole of human nature has narrowed down to before the incarnation takes place. Very unlike what we expected. That hinge moment of Mary hearing the news from Gabriel. It all hangs on that. All of God's salvation plan comes down to that one moment. Not only would he be born of woman, he would be born of a particular woman. He would come into the world in the natural way and Mary, this Jewish girl at her prayers, would, would have to make this decision. Will she cooperate? Will she, what will she do? What will she say to, to God's plan that involves her to, to, though she had been with no man, to, to be a part of this? In God's great project of salvation, Mary was essential. Um, and this leads me to my, my side point. So we're kind of going along the highway. And there's this side point I think I'm interested I'm interested in. So if this doesn't, if this just confuses you, ignore it. But there's this, this verse in 1 Timothy that I think gets confusing for a lot of people. Maybe you've encountered it and, and kind of wondered what it's about. So it starts on, in 1 Timothy 2.14. And it says, it's talking about Adam and Eve. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it's talking about how Eve um, had, had opened the door for sin to come in the world by, by being deceived by the serpent. And, you know, Adam, both Adam and Eve both were a part of the, the fall of mankind, but Eve played that particular role. So then verse 15. And this is the verse that throws people. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. She will be saved through childbearing? What does that mean? This is our, our side trip, okay? So what, what, what can it possibly mean? Well, so does it, one, it, could it possibly mean that you gain salvation through the work of childbearing birth? So are women, you know, men are saved by putting their faith in Jesus, but women are saved when they give birth to a child? It is no way that the Bible means that. It makes it very clear that none of us are saved by our works, our deeds. We're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So it can't mean that. Another possible meaning I've heard is saved from dying through in childbirth, right? Childbirth especially in the ancient world, was dangerous. And so if a woman was faithful and she trusted God, you know, he would reward her with, with being saved through the danger of childbirth. And that makes a little more sense, but it's still not how God works. It, it's still not, God does not do it that way. Um, you know, and that would imply that any woman who does die in childbirth, and, and many did in the ancient world, that, oh, Obviously, you just didn't believe hard enough in God, or you weren't good enough. And that's not good, though. But so if it doesn't mean that, what could it mean? And here, here's, it, it could be translated slightly different. Saved not from childbearing, but saved through the childbirth. The childbirth. 
And so what I think Paul is doing here is he's using representative language, right? So just as Eve represented womankind, so now Mary is another representative of womankind. And so um, Eve was a representative and she failed. And now Mary, as this new representative of, of womankind, um, she would hear the word of God and trust and follow, right? She, in the childbirth of Jesus, she would, in a sense, redeem the, the failing of Eve by being a new representative of womankind. And, and here's the point of it, is that God, in designing a way of salvation for his people, for both men and women, he made it essential that a woman played this key hinge role. That, that, that the, the faithfulness of, of Mary was key to God's salvation project. Likewise, right, the other part of the great salvation project was the resurrection. God designed it that the women were the first to find the tomb and the first to proclaim the resurrection, even as they proclaimed that the, the men didn't believe at first. Right? So God set up his salvation plan with all these, these things. And it, it just, to me, it conveys his, his wisdom is, is awesome and glorious. Um, all right, side trip over. Back to uh, Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, verse 5, there's two times where it uses this one small Greek word called henna. Um, henna is, it means that in order that, or to um, sow that. And so it doesn't, you might not notice it quite, it could just mean two, but it, it really means an order that. And so why did God send forth his son? So there's two reasons given, two, two things that come out of the incarnation. In order that, first of all, that we would be redeemed from under the law. The law declares us guilty. So... Jesus was born, uh, came, um, born of woman, came into this world to redeem us from the law. Jesus, by giving us forgiveness of sins, he would restore our right standing with God so that the barrier that kept us from the life of God would be removed. So that's the first henna, so that we would redeem, be redeemed from under the law. The second henna is that um, we would receive adoption as sons. He would bring us into a relationship with God in closeness as, as sons and daughters that, that he would um, bring us closer to God than we've ever been before. That God sent us forth a son that we would not only be forgiven of our sins, but that we might be received into this new relationship with God where we are called son and daughter. How did God do that? How, how does God fulfill the adoption um, right? Verse 6, God sent forth the spirit of his son. Just as God sent forth a son, now it says God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. That is the completion of the adoption project. That's the, the declaration that we are our sons and our daughters of God. It's also the way in the spirit living in us that we have a closeness with God, that God has come near 
um, not just near through the, the flesh of a, of, of a child. God has come near through the Spirit in our hearts. That is the salvation project. Oh, and verse 7 just reminds us, yeah, and if we're sons and daughters, then we are heirs as well, right? Oh, yeah, we get that eternal life thing too, right? But first he makes us sons and daughters, and then life eternal with God just flows from that. That is the salvation project that God has been about for centuries, fulfilling and then through the, the incarnation, he, he brings it about so that we have life in him. We have that salvation in him. The question is, how do we respond to such a word? How do we respond to such an offer? And here's where I think Mary can, can show us the way. In John 1.12, it says, Yet to those who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, right? Sons and daughters of God. It's by receiving and believing. But, but what does that look like? And I think that's why I wanted that video to, to be shown. I think I showed it last year too. I, I love that movie and that representation. But, um, but Mary shows us that example because think about it. She, this angel brought her news that she could barely comprehend. You know, how will this be? How, how can this happen? I've, I've never been with the man. And, and she surely did not understand how it all worked. She surely didn't understand what it would mean for her life other than she knew it would change everything in her life, right? She, she surely couldn't foresee all the, the, the wrinkles of it. But she was called to trust in God's word anyways. And she did. May it be to me as you have said. She, she heard the word, and she said yes. That is the, the path for us. We might hear a word from God that we don't fully understand. I, Lord, I don't understand exactly what, what does your salvation mean? What, what does that look like in my life? I don't, there's things about the Bible I don't yet grasp. How, how can We are called to hear the word of salvation and say, I don't understand it all. But Jesus, I'm going to trust you anyways. I'm going to trust what I know of myself to, to follow you or say yes to you. And, and there may be aspects of my life I, I'll discover later, but I believe if I put my trust in your word, in you, the word became flesh, you'll be with me and you'll lead me. You'll teach me what I need to know when I need to know it. And you'll see me through, and I'll be with you forever. What word are you calling to, to, to trust and hear this morning? How has God brought his word to you? And what would it look like for you to, to trust and receive and follow? Let me pray. Father, I thank you that, that you engaged in this great salvation plan, even to the point of becoming a human being and taking on flesh so that you might see us um, and spend eternity with us. Father, I thank you that you've included us in this plan when we've said and trusted in your Son. Help us to understand and know what it means and to walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.